Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Michael Byers will join us to discuss Percival's Planet. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the tale of Pluto's discovery as the purported planet X of renowned astronomer Percival Lowell has received much attention as of late. However, never has the zeitgeist of the time been captured with as much realism as in the new book Percival's Planet. The author Michael Byers is noted for his previous works, Long for This World and The Coast of Good Intentions, as well as for his numerous essays and stories. He joins us today to talk about the hunt for Pluto as depicted in his book. And Mr. Byers, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you, Charles. This is really a fascinating book, uh, Percival's Planet, historical fictional account of uh, the search for Pluto. I'm, I'm curious, what drew you to the story? Well, at first I set out actually to write a book uh, that had nothing to do with Pluto. Really the era that interested me. I was, in fact, in the middle of writing a family saga about my own grandparents. And it turned out that writing about my grandparents' career, my grandfather's career in law school, was really very uninteresting, even to me. So I sort of threw it over for a while and came back to it sometime later and had, at some point in the interim, years after I put the book down, came across or remembered the fact that in the late 1920s at Harvard, where my granddad was in law school, they were involved in the search in conjunction with Lowell Observatory for Percival Lowell's missing Planet X. And so I decided to make my grandfather into an astronomer. He immediately became much more interesting. So I was able to uh, kind of follow his career, imagined as it was, and hook him up in an imagined way with the real-life Clyde Tombaugh and the other folks who were involved with with the search uh, as it actually happened. So astronomers inherently more interesting than lawyers? (laughs) (laughs) I think if you ask astronomers, they would agree with you. I'm not sure about lawyers. (laughs) Then so what was it about the uh, the time period itself then that would drew you to the story? Well, I had been wanting to write about the experiences of my grandmother and her experiences with mental illness and uh, with the marriage that she was in with my grandfather. But as I explored her life and then uh, my grandfather's life and the lives of the people who who would eventually be uh, in the novel, uh, it struck me as a period that, among other things, seemed very familiar, right? Uh, it's got a, a kind of frothy popular culture catching the attention of the country's young, and it's got a kind of a looming dread waiting at the end of it, and I don't mean to speak too negatively here about our time, but it spoke to me. It spoke to me as somebody living now. And so I felt there were some parallels that were going to be interesting at least to explore and to see what we could do with within the confines of a historical novel. The character in the book, uh, Mary Hempstead, is uh, essentially a take on your grandmother's life? Yeah, I have her. Mary Hempstead is eventually the woman who marries the character who began as my grandfather. This is a novelist's curse of not knowing quite what the novel is that one is writing until one's about halfway through. 
her suffering and her mental illness is pretty carefully modeled on what I found to be a sort of a typical experience at the time. Now, not, you know, she has her own set of delusions, but the way that she gets treated was very much drawn from historical accounts. Uh, so she's one of the things that was done for uh, patients in, in asylums, they were known then in mental hospitals, was something called a hot wrap, which they would wrap you in wet sheet and wrap you very tightly until you couldn't move at all. And it sounds like torture to us, almost literally, but it was reported, anyway, and everything, basically everything I read is something that the patients really responded to and came to like as a kind of a reassuring uh, experience, the sort of big embrace of the, of the sheets. Uh, there was very little medicine, you know, of any kind. So a lot of the treatment was wait and see and hands off and keep them safe. Primitive sort of uh, approach at the time. Yeah, primitive is a good word, uh, but also pretty kindly. I mean, we, which surprised me, actually. We have these images of bedlam, the terrible kind of horrors of early century treatment of mental illness. But in fact, a lot of it, as I found, and I'm no expert exactly, but as I found, was pretty kindly and careful and you know, they were at a point in the science of learning about mental illness where they were making some headway in the 20s, and a lot of it was kind of descriptive, right? So they, they tried to figure out what people were experiencing and describe it as carefully as possible, design treatments that would respond to those experiences. So it was less kind of coldly clinical and psychologically theoretical than you might expect. I mean, there were a lot of Freudians around and so on, but, uh, but a lot of places were quite careful and attentive to the individual experiences that people uh, we're undergoing. It takes place in Flagstaff, Arizona, which uh, coincidentally is my hometown. <laughs> oh, beautiful place. It is. Did you spend much time there? Yeah, I went out there eventually to conduct research for the novel and got to spend a couple nights at the observatory itself, literally sleeping there. And it was a crucial thing for any novelist to do, I suppose, is to get to the place where the book is actually occurring. Actually, the, the most interesting thing I, I found there was were the journals of Clyde Tombaugh himself. They still have them down there in the vaults, and I was allowed to handle them and go through them and look at them and notice how it's quite amazing, extremely meticulous work in the journals themselves represented. Every last thing that he saw was recorded, and even the handwriting is perfect. And it struck me then, kind of late, I suppose, but it, it did strike me that the kid who Clyde Tomba was, the guy who kind of grew up in Kansas making his own telescopes from scratch, like grinding these mirrors meticulously. He was the guy who then would come to look at these long exposure photographic plates and then be able to look at them very carefully and find a little tiny speck that was Planet X. You know, he was, he was the perfect guy to do this job. And it was just represented in those amazing red, sort of red bound journals with this beautiful old paper and this blue fountain pen ink, just gorgeously done being out there was, was really illuminating in that way. How much of the uh, Clyde Tomba in your novel really is, uh, you think, reflective of uh, the Clyde Tomba you discovered in these? In these uh... Well, that's a fair question. You know, a lot of the circumstances of his life are as I put them, so as I have them. So he, he, he was a son of a tenant farmer and had been moved with his family to Kansas from Streeter, Illinois, when he was 16 and wanted to get out of there. But they didn't have any money, and he was, they were saving up money for him to go to college, and it just it, it didn't work. Uh, they didn't. They, his family could not save the money. Uh, there was a, a terrible hailstorm, and his oat field, which was going to be part of his college fund, was freakishly destroyed. And basically, that was the only thing that was destroyed for miles around. So the universe were saying, your fate is not to go to college with this oat fund. <laughs> 
And then despondent, he writes to Vesto V.M. Slifer, who is the director of, of Lowell Observatory, saying, what am I supposed to do with my life? Here I am making telescopes in the middle of nowhere. And as it happened, Lowell Observatory had an opening for a kid who could do grunt work, somebody who would work cheap and who, who could do these long period exposures and look at the plates that came off the telescope as a result. So all that is the case. I mean, I, that's all in, in the novel, and it was, it was really moving actually to me to, to see how this kid dealt with what was really shattering adversity for him not to be able to go to college and then to force himself to do the work that he was invited to do in Flagstaff. Uh, as a novelist, though, my attention is drawn to gaps in account. So what is not said, what is not, on the, what is not in the official record, how people felt, and, and what were their other secret, unadmitted desires and wishes. And so I, I allow myself free reign in, in giving Clyde Domba a little more anger and a little more resentment and a little more frustration than has been left to us in the official record. Well, it certainly uh, makes an interesting story, I would say. Yeah. Well, right. If he's if he's not wanting to get out of there, <laughs> why should we care whether he does? <laughs> Indeed. Portraying a period of the 20th century here, do you think it was different in the West? The culture was definitely coming from the East. As my understanding, you could probably speak more eloquently on this than I, but, you know, Flagstaff, although it was a tiny burg and out of the way, a lot of people came through there because they were on their way to the Grand Canyon. And there was a great deal of ferment and interest going on in Arizona in the 20s. So it wasn't as out of the way as I actually had expected it to be. I'd sort of expected as I was embarking on the research to find this place that was basically like Mars, out, like completely off the beaten track. And it, and it wasn't. And there is, I think, in the historical record, there's a great deal of pride and self-definition that you can find in the way people talk about Arizona and, and Flagstaff and, and the West itself. Uh, the book is populated by a lot of very interesting characters, and one of the more interesting ones is The Boxer. Yes. Well, any, every book that happens in the 1920s has to have a, a heavyweight boxer. I think that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the rule. Uh, yeah, well, um, Clyde Tombaugh is, is sort of the, the narrative spine of the book, and then there are a lot of characters, real and imagined, who, who are um, involved in various subplots, which are all twined together to, to make up the story of the discovery of Planet X. And, yeah, Teddy, Teddy Howe, Edward Howe, is the boxer. And as I kind of accumulated these various storytellers' points of view in the book, I began to think of them as planets, right, as people whose lives would interfere with and perturb the lives of the other characters in the way that planets were perturbing one another. And so using that model, I was able to think about, all right, so what is, what is Teddy doing in this book exactly? What is he for? Uh, he's, he's there to push a certain narrative line along, it's to influence the Mary character, who is my grandmother character, and then to influence, therefore, her husband and the astronomers and so forth. So everybody has a purpose, as I, as I came to understand it. The purpose comes clear slowly to me as I'm writing the book. But he was fun. He was fun to write. The, 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 the thing that's fun to me, I, I am in no way a boxer. <laughs> Whatever the opposite of a boxer is, that's me. So it was fun to think about, as a writer, inhabiting the body of somebody who is just kind of effortlessly huge and menacing, but with a tender heart, of course. The gentle giant. Yeah, exactly. 
So all these characters are sort of, in, in a way, revolving around Clyde. Right. Um, and this was what had drawn Percival Lowell himself to the idea of there being a Planet X. There were perturbations, strange variances in the orbits, especially of Uranus, but also of Neptune, seemed to be unexplained. And so he thought there must be a larger, a kind of a gas giant planet out there past Neptune remaining to be discovered. And that's what drew him, this question of influences and interferences. And it struck me as something that's, you know, at once really interesting in a physical sense, right? Um, how one would discern the location of, of a planet by observing other planets, but also a, a kind of uh, uh, an immediately useful and obvious metaphor. I could just kind of steal from Percival Lowell. The discovery of Pluto actually uh, makes use of an interesting uh, device. Uh, they have this thing called the Blink Comparator. So, that, yeah, the Blink Comparator was their pride and joy, at least, I think, for the guys who didn't have to work at it. Um, I think for the for the astronomers who really had to take turns at it, it was it was a terror. I think they hated it. It um, it, it took uh, so you have two exposed photographic plates side by side of the night sky, and these are negatives, right? So it's a white, basically a white plate with little hundreds, thousands of little black specks on it, which are stars or you hope a planet. And you've taken two pictures about a week apart, and you hope that you've taken them under similar enough conditions that they look almost identical. Two photographs of the same area of sky. And then minute area by minute area, you look through a single objective, and using a mechanical switch, you see first plate A and then plate B. And if everything is the same from plate A to plate B, you can kind of go on. But it took them days and days and days to, to run just one plate pair through the comparator. So if you go out, this is amazing, this is amazing to me. You, you're sitting there at the comparator and you can actually turn it on still, it's in there, it's, it's, at, it's at the observatory. You can turn it on and you can watch the light, you know, you can watch the flipping happening within the ocular. And what they've done is they put the Pluto discovery plates in so you can see where Pluto is and what it looks like. And they put an arrow <laughs> pointing to Pluto. And it is such a tiny speck that you can barely see it, even with the arrow pointing you right at it. And it's just, every time I see somebody look at it or, or experience this, the first thing they say is, no way, <laughs> right? No way he found that. Right. How did he find that? How did he do it? Well, it took a very special person like Clyde Tomball, right, really, with the meticulous kind of care that he put into these things, right? Yeah, meticulous to the point of obsession or something. I mean, there was, there was something very fundamental about the way he encountered the world, which allowed him to do this work. And I think also he needed the work, right? He, he needed the work, and he, he wanted to be able to do it well enough to stay on. His first invitation from Vesto Slifer, the director out there, was for a month on a provisional basis. He said, come on out for a month. He'd graduated from high school. He was 22 years old. He'd never been to college. They didn't know who this kid was. So he, he really needed to prove himself. And he did his best to prove himself. And that's, again, the sort of moving part of this. And it's something that, you know, that exists in the, when you, when you look at, say, Tombaugh's own writings about that time, uh, the essay, uh, the little kind of non-autobiographical writings that he, that he undertook, he tells you in the writing that, you know, he was worried and he wanted to keep his job and so on. <laughs> But the, what's vivid to me as a novelist and what really draws my attention is how desperately that must have colored everything that he thought or felt or did and how, how intent he must have been on keeping his job and, and keep, keeping himself off a train that went back to Kansas. And at the same time, building up 
a certain set of resentments against the project itself, not believing in the project at certain times, wanting to go home and, and be quit of all this business that seemed impossible and seemed ridiculous. At one point I have him imagining that he's been sent on somehow for some unknown, uh, unknowable reason, that he's been sent out on a kind of a snipe hunt, right, standing out there in a field waiting for the snipe to be driven his way with the empty bag. And it does strike me like he he was kind of sent on a snipe hunt almost. I wonder sometimes if if even the director, Vesto Slifer, believed that there was anything out there. I don't know if he did or not. I, I kind of think he was of, of a couple minds about it. And he came back, Clyde Donald came back to the observatory. And this metaphor, he, he comes back with a snipe that nobody <laughs> expected him to find, which is striking. And of course, to me, the final irony or cosmic strangeness of this story is that the planet X, Pluto, was found almost exactly where Percival Lowell's math indicated that it would be. It was very faint, though, so there was no way for them to have found it with earlier equipment. And the reason it was so faint was that it was so small, and it was too small, in fact, to produce the perturbations that would allow Percival Lowell's math to be correct, right? So there was no way it could have been discovered or, or detected through perturbative work uh, or you know, you, you couldn't find it that way. It was just a huge coincidence. And in fact, the, the irregularities in Uranus's orbit were later found to be not there. And so the total weirdness and the absolute cosmic impossibility of the whole story of the discovery of Pluto gets more striking and more strange the more you read about it. And certainly that was the case for me as the novelist. Wonderful serendipity, at least for Clyde. Absolutely. And it turns out to be nothing but. And yet, how could it possibly be? <laughs> right? How could it possibly be serendipitous? It's almost as though Percival Lowell, by standing out there in the Martian desert for all those years, came in contact with whatever powers of the universe that the Lowells were in power in contact with and found a planet through the force of his Lowellian will alone. He willed it into being. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons, of course, why it was useful to me to have that, to have Pluto's reclassification happen when it did. It allowed me to think about, all right, what did, what did the guys, what did the astronomers think they had? Because they knew it was too small. They knew it was not the gas giant. They didn't have a better word than planet to describe it, but they knew it, it really wasn't planet X. And when they announced, when they announced the discovery, they waited a few weeks to, to really see what they had, to see if it would get any bigger. And uh, when they announced it, they didn't call it a planet. They called it a trans-Neptunian object. And it was, in fact, uh, the media, the newspapers, who the next day announced to everybody that Lowell Observatory had found Planet X. And while I don't think the director and the astronomers were guilty of any ill will or of any hoodwinking exactly, they were not going to get in anybody's way when they called it a planet. Well, certainly it uh, didn't hurt them to have it be a planet. Exactly. And they had tons of pressure from all different quarters, some of which is acknowledged in the record and some of which I think must have been there. Pressures from family and from their own professional kinds of expectations. And as a novelist, I also add some romantic and other kinds of pressure, too, uh, just to uh, sweeten the pot a little bit. Well, what happened to the real Clyde Tombaugh after um, his discovery? Well, my familiarity with his life after Planet X work is a little spotty, but he went on to college. He went on to earn, as I understand it, a PhD, and went on to teach and work for uh, the rest of his life in various places. He was at 
White Sands, New Mexico for a while in the 40s, and he ended up finally at Las Cruces, New Mexico, teaching at New Mexico State University, where he lived his later adult life. Did the discovery of this 10th planet affect him or always follow him, or was he somewhat dismissive of it as just being part of his life? I wondered that, and in the book I have a, I have a kind of a bookend. I have, the book opens in 1990 when he's in his 80s, and he's invited to talk, give a talk, which is the occasion for him thinking about the rest of the story. You know, the public record and the record that's avowed by Tombo himself and by the people who knew him are that he was certainly delighted <laughs> and very pleased to be the guy who found Pluto. And if you look at the photographs of him in his later life, it's remarkable how cheerful and cheery he looks. I mean, he looks beautifully, innocently, perfectly happy. And yet I wonder, right? Uh, I have to also suspect or think that occasionally it must have been a, a bit of, not a burden exactly, but a strange thing to bear to be somebody who found a planet. And how do people then interact with you? What can you do for the rest of your life? I mean, he discovers it at 24. He's 24 years old. He's just a kid, really. What for the rest of your life can live up to that? I wondered about that. He stuck on at Lowell Observatory for more than a decade afterward, working there and looking for, essentially, more Plutos, none of which ever came to light, at least not during his tenure there. So he was certainly dedicated to the project in a very complete way. But I do wonder, psychologically speaking, I allow myself to give him a little bit of a dark side, which admittedly is, is not that evident in the photographs and in his own accounts. Well, your accounting of it, at least in your novel, Percival's Planet, is really very fascinating, and I certainly hope people will go out and take a look at it. Mr. Byers, I want to thank you very much for joining me on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's been really fun. Thanks for having me, and thanks for, uh, thanks for the interest. And you were just listening to Michael Byers discussing Percival's Planet. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Well, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, which planet would they be? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were a planet, which planet would they be and why? Are you ready to play the game? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, uh, which planet would she be? Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. She would not be a planet. She would be a, <laughs> a, like a, she would be a moon of... Uh, she would be Io. She would be the moon of, of Jupiter that is highly volcanic and strange, a totally bizarre world. How about that? <laughs> Probably a good description of her. <laughs> <laughs> highly volcanic. Highly volcanic. Full of sulfur. <laughs> All right. Well, number two is uh, the golfer Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods, uh, my first instinct is to say uh, Mercury, uh, living uh, close to the sun in a kind of Icarus-like fashion and sailing a little too close to it for comfort. Yeah, might, might, might fall in if he's not too careful. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, well, number three is famed physicist Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is like the International Space Station. He's a work of I inspiration, brilliance, and technology. So, <laughs> so that's what he is. He's not a planet. All right, uh, number four is the actor David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> David Hasselhoff is Earth like in the tertiary era. Very hot, 
a lot of beasts roaming around, giant oceans full of uh, titanic ferns. Well, number five, finally, which planet would he be? It's uh, the former governor of our state here, uh, Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> Rod Blagojevich. Rod Blagojevich is, you know, what is he? He's like a... Uh, He's like one of these probes on his way to Mars that gets lost, just like <laughs> lost in the atmosphere. He's coming in, he's got his hair out like the parachute, and he's coming in for the, and he just blows it. He completely <laughs> blows it. And he's never seen again until the record is discovered some, some years later. <laughs> There's a, he's, he's like a scar on the Martian landscape. How's that? <laughs> that's uh, probably a very apt description. <laughs> I uh, broke all the rules. I'm sorry. That's, that's perfectly fine. We really enjoyed your answers. <laughs> we certainly would like to thank you for sticking around playing your game and, uh, of course, again, talking about your book, Percival's Planet. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.